Good morning. I want to make a bold claim this morning. Aside from the incarnation, life, death, resurrection of Jesus, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, I think the events that we're going to talk about this morning are the most important events in the New Testament. Not just because I'm talking about them. Because they're really a really big deal. So we're going to be looking at uh, Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 15 together. If you can turn there in your Bibles if you want, but don't miss the PowerPoint. It's the best one I've ever made. <laughs> All right, so this story changes everything. But before we get to the story, I want to uh, make sure that we remember what has happened in the book of Acts so far. So remember in chapter 1, Jesus told his disciples, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. And then he gives three spheres in which they're going to be his witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now that might not mean a lot to you, or before you took our classes here, Bible classes and had to study maps, that might not have meant a lot. But what's going on here is a, is a widening circle of influence of the early church. They're supposed to wait for the Spirit, and once the Spirit comes, they're supposed to take the news to all nations. So first they begin in Jerusalem, and then all Judea. So they're, they're um, spreading out over Jewish territory and Samaria. And then on the bigger map, you can see they're going to go to the ends of the earth, the ends of the known world with the gospel. So today's story takes place in this widening circle of influence. You can see on the map they've gone, Peter has gone from Jerusalem to the coast. We're going to catch up with him in a place called Joppa. Um, and, and then we'll travel with him to Caesarea and then we'll go back to Jerusalem where the whole major series of events culminates in a church council meeting. I know you can hardly wait but the reason it's such a game changer starts uh, with a series of surprises involving Peter. So here's what we're going to see. We'll see an unlikely visitor. And then we'll watch an unsettling vision. And then we'll hear an unplanned sermon. And then watch an unmistakable sign. And then in chapter 15, we'll find some unanticipated support. So first, the unlikely visitor. The narrative begins in Caesarea a port city built by Herod the Great in honor of the Emperor Caesar Augustus. It's the Roman diplomatic headquarters of the area, and it boasts every modern convenience. Bathhouses, a deep water port that they built like on a straight, flat coastline by sinking hydraulic cement into the, into the Mediterranean Sea that would harden underwater. Pretty amazing. Uh, a coliseum, a hippodrome, and temples to honor pagan gods. Caesarea had it all. In this cosmopolitan city lives a Roman centurion. His name is Cornelius, and he has chosen the path less traveled. He's been sent to Caesarea to keep an eye on the Jews. He's going to keep them in line. But instead of domineering them, he befriends them, and he begins to worship Yahweh. And he gets his entire household to worship Yahweh. He is not your average Roman 
centurion. One day he's praying and he gets an unlikely visitor. An angel shows up. Cornelius, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. And then the angel vanishes. Why send for Peter? He's not told, but he gets busy obeying right away, and he sends three of his best men to go get this guy named Peter. Now, you remember Peter, right? Peter, the thick-headed, big-mouthed, rough-around-the-edges disciple of Jesus. He's taken to the road, and he's been telling people about Jesus all throughout Judea, and his travels have taken him to the port city of Joppa. Does that ring a bell? It should, if you've read the Old Testament prophets, you know about a guy named Jonah who would rather die at sea than preach God's word to Gentiles because they might repent and then God might show grace to them and that would be nothing short of a disaster. Jonah wanted God's grace to be the exclusive possession of the Israelites. And so in his running away from God's commission, he runs to Joppa and gets on board a ship. And that's basically the last time we heard of Joppa. So now Peter's in Joppa, and I think God is saying, ha, time for a do-over. Let's try this again. But Peter doesn't know this. It's noon, the day after Cornelius's unlikely visitor. And Peter is in Joppa waiting for lunch to be served. The the soldiers that Cornelius sent to get him are en route. They're on their way to get him. Uh, But Peter's waiting for lunch. It's the middle of a very ordinary day. He he can't get Wi-Fi and there's nothing on TV. So while he's waiting for lunch, he goes up to the flat rooftop of this house to just rest and pray. Actually, he, he goes up to pray, but it appears he falls asleep or something happens there, right? So he falls into a trance, and he sees an unsettling vision. Did you catch that? I'll do it again. All right. A sheet full of unclean animals is lowered from the sky, and he hears a voice. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, I don't know about you. If you have dreams at night that correspond to the last thing you were thinking about when you fell asleep, it happens to us all. Let me just say, we're not baptizing those dreams. We're not saying those are all like signs from God. But in this case, it is. Peter is quick on the draw. Surely not, Lord, for I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. So Peter won't let his rumbling stomach undermine his firm commitment to Torah obedience. That sheet was full of animals that were off limits for kosher diets. But the voice answered, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Huh? It typically takes God three times to get through Peter's thick skull. So the vision and the voice repeat themselves two more times, giving me another opportunity to demonstrate my PowerPoint skill. (laughs) Peter sits there mulling this over. What could it mean? Meanwhile, the men looking for him arrive at the house and knock at the door. And as they're knocking on the door, Peter's still up on the roof, and he hears the Spirit say to him, very conveniently, Simon, that's his Hebrew name, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Why? 
Peter's not told. Just like Cornelius isn't told why to send for Peter. This has got to be the coolest blind date in history. <laughs> it is so, it is such a divine setup. So with two strange things in a row, this voice about visitors and this sheet from the sky, Peter is, is sure that there must be a connection between them and God is up to something. So the next day, the men all return to Caesarea with Peter. Cornelius is expecting them. He has, in faith, called together everybody he knows, all his family and close friends, and they're all gathered in his house just waiting for them to arrive. Good thing Peter obeyed. Peter walks in, and he's still not sure what this is all about. He tells them, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. That's a little extreme, but anyway, this is, this is where things had come in Judaism. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. It's dawned on Peter by this point that that vision has something to do with the visitors who've come who are Gentiles, and so he's connecting the two together. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? So Cornelius tells his side of the story and closes with an invitation. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. But the Lord hasn't commanded Peter to say anything, right? It was just, go with these people, I've sent them. So it's really, as a reader, I'm thinking, what's he going to say? But Peter's not usually short on words. So he launches immediately into his unplanned sermon. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Then he dives into the sermon he could do in his sleep, the story of Jesus, his life, miracles, death, and resurrection. Before he can finish this sermon he knows so well, the Holy Spirit shows up. Did you catch that? I'll, I'll do it again. The Holy Spirit shows up. <laughs> Suddenly, Gentiles are speaking in tongues and praising God, and Peter and the other Jewish believers are astonished. This is not what Peter thought was about to happen. Here's what Peter thought was about to happen. I preach the gospel. They want to follow Jesus. We help them get circumcised. Then we baptize them, and then the Spirit falls, and then they join our church. Like, this was in his mind, the, you know, seven steps to joining the Jewish uh, Christians who follow Jesus. Well, that is not what happens. The Holy Spirit has pulled the rug right out from under Peter by skipping right to the end. To be Spirit-filled now, already, before circumcision, before baptism, is the unmistakable sign that God sees them as covenant members. But wait, I thought the covenant was for the Jews. You remember the covenant at Sinai. God told the Israelites they were his treasured people. He gave them instructions, lots of them, that would separate them from the rest of the nations, that would maintain a distinction between them and other nations. Their distinctive diet, this kosher diet that they have to follow, reinforces the separation by preventing table fellowship. When you can't eat together, it's kind of the end. And now he's throwing open the doors to the Gentiles and telling Peter to eat bacon? Did we miss something? <laughs> this seems odd. 
Yes, we have missed something, and so had Peter. Make no mistake, God's plan was always to throw open the doors and let the Gentiles come in. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, through you all nations will be blessed. The prophet Isaiah announced that all nations will stream to Yahweh's temple, desiring to walk in his ways. Finally, the time had come. It was time. Peter wasn't ready for it. He didn't know what to do with it, but the time had come. You see, Sinai was important, but it was not God's final word on everything. It was rather an invitation to an ongoing relationship. God did not say everything that needed to be said for all time at Sinai. He revealed himself and said, hey, I want to hang out together from now on. And here's how we can make that possible. In fact, Yahweh was explicit at Sinai that they would need further guidance, that they couldn't just take the law and leave. He said he would send his messenger to go with them and lead them and instruct them. Well, why would they need instructions if God had already said everything that needed to be said at Sinai? That's in Exodus chapter 23. So we find out in this story that many of Sinai's instructions are actually temporary. They're meant to set God's people apart for the nations so that they can model for others what God is like. But now that Jesus has come, a new era has dawned. The laws that were meant to divide between ethnic groups are now irrelevant, even dangerous. No longer call unclean what I have made clean. So the spirit falls on Gentiles, making it obvious that God considers them covenant members because of their faith in Jesus. And Peter's improvising. Well, I guess we should baptize them since they already have the spirit, like there's no reason to make them wait. So this is Acts chapter 10, a remarkable series of events that usher in a new age for the church, an unlikely visitor, an unsettling vision, an unplanned sermon, and an unmistakable sign. Chapter 11 is mainly damage control. Have you heard? Peter is eating with Gentiles. I know, right? Scandalous. So back in Jerusalem, Peter starts at the beginning of the story, and he retells everything God has done. And who can argue with the Spirit? He says to them, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them just as he had come on us from the beginning. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? The Spirit of God calls the shots. The Spirit cannot be managed or controlled or predicted. And when the Spirit of God throws open the doors we'd best put out the welcome mat. Who do you think doesn't belong in the kingdom of God? Bikers? Liberals? Muslims? Oilers fans? <laughs> Gays? Skaters? Trump supporters? Who, who in your mind is, is outside of the realm of God's grace? We are not the gatekeepers. We don't get to decide who's in. God's grace is for everyone. And they don't have to look like us or act like us or speak our language to belong. The Spirit marks them as belonging to God. 
Atlanta megachurch pastor Andy Stanley has an amazing gift for drawing unbelievers into the church. His sermons are accessible for, to people who don't know the lingo and have never been in church before. They haven't heard the stories. But in 2018, he's gone on record with this radical idea. Don't miss it. Stanley thinks the way to put out the welcome mat is to do away with the Ten Commandments because they have, quote, no authority over you, end quote. Taking his cue from Acts 15, Stanley wants to remove any barrier that would keep people out of the church. He'd like to start by unhitching from the Old Testament because it's so full of difficult texts. From his perspective, that's what the church leaders are doing in Acts 15. They're setting aside the Old Testament and moving on. They've been liberated, enlightened. Their chains are gone. So let's take a closer look at Acts chapter 15. Is that really what happened? Some time has passed since Peter's experience along the coast. Other Gentiles around the Roman world have been coming to Christ. Paul and Barnabas go on their first missionary journey, and then the inevitable happens. Conflict. Some Jewish Christians were not on board with Peter's new thinking, and they started to go far and wide to tell everybody about it, insisting that Gentiles needed to be circumcised if they wanted to follow Jesus. So people got confused. Paul and Barnabas met Peter, James, and the rest of the elders in Jerusalem to discuss the matter. They've been up in Antioch. They all gather in Jerusalem, so let's listen in to find out how did they resolve this issue. Here are the minutes from this most important council meeting. First, there's general discussion. Then a time for testimonies. Peter speaks, Paul speaks, Barnabas speaks. And then James stands up and gives biblical support. And then the fourth part of the business meeting, council meeting, is an action step. They form a delegation and deliver a letter to the church at Antioch. So first, they talk at length, debating the issue. I would love to have been a fly on the wall there and listen. But then two important proofs are offered. After all that everybody said what they think, two things stand out that enable them to make their conclusion that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. Let's watch for what those two things are. First is Peter. He points to his experience at Caesarea. He says to them, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. The Spirit came on believing Gentiles as Gentiles. God no longer distinguishes between us and them. So this gift of the Spirit is proof number one. But I imagine there are people who are still a little nervous, right? Because this is based on somebody's experience, and we have the scriptures, and so what do we do with what the Bible says? What do we do with Sinai? So Jesus' brother James takes the mic, backing him up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Wait, a people for his name? 
That's covenant language. That's a clear reference to covenant membership. A people for his name means they're like Israel at Sinai where God's putting his name on them and saying not to bear it in vain. This is treating them as if they are Israelites. How might James draw this conclusion? People for his name from the Gentiles. When the Spirit fell on the believers at Caesarea, it was this uncontrovertible evidence that they must bear the name. They must be covenant members. You remember the story, and I have here a picture of Peter. His forehead's a little hard to read, but it says belonging to Yahweh across his forehead. Yahweh put his name on Israel at Sinai, claiming them as his own. So when the Spirit fell on the Gentiles, it was as if this happened. You, you, can't, you can't take the name of God and put it on Gentiles. That would be like profaning it, like desecrating it. Wow, it's hard for us to feel along with the early church just how shocking this would have been. But James goes on. He's not done. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written. Now, at this point, James is going to point to the Old Testament to back up Peter's experience of the Spirit. And I would say the support he finds there is unanticipated. Because while there's a number of Old Testament passages that talk about the nations being blessed or the nations coming to worship, there's, there's only one place I know of in the Old Testament where James could have quoted that implies that the Gentiles can be covenant members or can follow Yahweh as Gentiles and be considered covenant members. That's Amos chapter 9. That's what James chooses. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. So we're talking about the restoration of the Davidic dynasty. That's a very Israelite-centric thing. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. Gentiles who bear my name. Says the Lord who does these things known from long ago. Amos 9 was there all along. But Jewish Christians had missed it because it didn't fit their paradigm. This provides proof number two that Gentiles don't have to become Jews first to follow Jesus. As it is written. Rather than unhitching, James underscores the authority of the Old Testament for the process of discernment. They could trust Peter's spiritual experience because it lined up with the scriptures. And this is no isolated incident. The New Testament authors consistently use the, New, use the Old Testament as their primary source for ethical reflection. In fact, they use the Old Testament to figure out how to live well as followers of Jesus more often than they refer back to things Jesus himself said in the Gospels. In other words, they're not just reminiscing about the bad old days when they talk about the Old Testament. It remains their authority. It tells them how to live after the resurrection. And some of you are having a little moment where you're realizing why I like this passage so much. 
Peter's vision revealed that it was time to set aside laws that divided Jew from Gentile. The vision did not suggest that the Old Testament as a whole was no longer relevant. Quite the opposite. The Holy Spirit worked hand in hand with the Old Testament scriptures. And while the Sinai instructions that were designed to keep Jews separate from Gentiles were no longer in effect, we have no indication in this passage that the rest of the law is set aside. So, a delegation is sent from Jerusalem back to Antioch with the decision of the elders. Jewish conversion is unnecessary. They list just four things for Gentile converts to avoid. Eating food sacrificed to idols, eating blood, eating the meat of strangled animals, and sexual immorality. That may feel like a little bit of a random list to you. I think the most convincing explanation I've heard for why these four things are mentioned is that all four were closely related to pagan worship and were part of pagan worship. So, no, you don't have to convert to Judaism to follow Jesus, but you do have to leave behind pagan worship. You can't keep hanging out at the Temple of Artemis and doing what they do there. Um, and that's it. That's it. That's the major turning point in history. Most of us in this room are followers of Jesus because of that church council meeting that enabled the gospel to spread far and wide among Gentiles. The spirit fell. The scriptures confirmed. And now everyone knows the law was not God's final word on every matter, but rather an invitation to an ongoing relationship with him. In order to walk well as believers, we must continue to seek God's guidance and be alert to the movement of the Spirit. When the Spirit of God throws open the doors, we'd best put out the welcome mat. Peter and Paul each started out as Torah-abiding Jews, determined to stamp out any deviant theology. And we could commend them for that, right? But every generation stands at risk, including us, of repeating their misguided behavior. We so quickly fall into the trap of thinking that our understanding of the scriptures or our version of reality is the only right one. But the Spirit of God calls the shots. Some of us are going to wake up one morning and realize that some of the doctrines we've been clinging to are not in step with the Spirit or the Scriptures, and that they've been designed to keep people out rather than welcome them in. Will we have the humility to change our minds? The Spirit is stirring among men, women, and children in cultures and subcultures all around the world. Will we join the apostles in putting out the welcome mat? I grew up in the Christian Reformed Church. We knew the word of God inside and out, and we took special pride in being right about everything. Nobody ever said it quite like this, but as a child, I distinctly remember thinking that when I get to heaven, all of us who were in the CRC would be in the front row, and if those Baptists got in by the skin of their teeth, they'd be somewhere near the back. I really thought this. I believed with all my heart that preaching the word was a task only for men. 
I believed that divine healing and speaking in tongues were confined to the first generation of the church. I don't think I was against spirit-filling in principle, but I would have been hard-pressed to tell you actually what it is. I was certainly against all those godless scientists who insisted that the earth was old and it all started with a bang. I thought doubt was dangerous and angry prayer was ungodly. And I thought a lot of other things that I don't think now. So what happened? The spirit showed up. Our poster child Christian family with hidden wounds got tired of pretending we were okay. Pretending we had it all together. So we were invited to a charismatic church where the spirit of God was front and center at every meeting. And we went. We discovered life and freedom and, yes, divine healing and tongues. I experienced a call to missions that propelled me to a mostly Baptist Bible college where I discovered that the Baptists hadn't jumped off the deep end and that God had wired me, a woman, to teach. And that my greatest passion was to teach his word, which I used to not even think I was allowed to do. Later, I met scientists and Bible scholars who loved Jesus and believed the word of God, but saw things there that I had missed. Later still, I went through a dark valley and discovered the immense riches of the Psalms. God met me in those desperate and angry prayers. What I'm trying to tell you is that I changed. My beliefs changed, not because I rejected the word of God, but because by the help of the Spirit, I discovered what was there all along. Jesus continues to walk with me through the seasons of my life, instructing me, transforming me. That's the kind of God he is. That's the kind of faith we have. It's anchored but not static. It's dynamic but not disorderly. In order to walk well as believers, we must continue to seek God's guidance and to be alert to the movement of the Spirit. That might mean changing our minds about a few things. I'm so glad Peter was teachable, aren't you? That welcome mat was our ticket to covenant membership. And boy, did Peter take that, this seriously. In his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, writing to Gentiles around the Roman world, he says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is Sinai language, and now it belongs to us because the Spirit threw open the doors and the early church put out the welcome mat. Holy nation, treasured possession. Praise God. Let's follow their lead and do the same. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for the way that your spirit is at work in our midst. Thank you for giving us ongoing guidance and direction. Thank you for not just leaving us with a list of rules, but for inviting us into a living relationship with you where you continue to teach us and show us your ways. Help us to be teachable. Help us to be open to changing our minds when, when change needs to happen. Help us to be the kind of community that puts out a welcome mat 
for people in whom the Spirit of God is at work. Lord, we pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.